to welcome uh, Van, the lead pastor, up here to introduce our guest speaker. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Yeah, we have uh, a, a real special treat today, and that is Dave Workman and Anita Workman, and the daughter Katie is here also. So Dave's going to be up here in a moment, so I'm going to embarrass Anita and Katie. Would you both stand up and wave to the, everybody, please? Come on. Come on. We love you. Yeah. All right. Uh, if, if, uh, if you've been here for the last year or so, you know that last year in August we had Steve and Janie Shogren here. Uh, Steve was my church planting coach. And then in December we had um, Happy and Diane Lehman here. They, they were the pastors of the vineyard that Lori and I uh, were first part of the vineyard in. And both of those couples very significant in the founding of this church. And today we complete the trilogy. We have Dave and Anita here, okay? So I first met Dave in 1999 when we moved here, and in uh, 2001, when the Lord led us to plant Vineyard Northwest, uh, I, I, had, I had, uh, had some plans and some things in my heart, but I was certain that I wasn't going to try to plant a vineyard without Dave's blessing. And so I remember we met at a coffee shop. I uh, can't remember the name of it, but it was in a bookstore. And I talked to Dave about what we wanted to do. And Dave just very graciously just said, yes, I, I bless that. I'd love to see a vineyard there. And so go for it. Go do it. And his encouragement uh, over the years has been uh, really incredible in my life and in Lori's life. We consider Dave and Anita very good friends. Uh, Dave, uh, well, they shared with us. They shared people with us. And they shared resources with us that just helped us so much in those initial stages, particularly, especially, of the church plant here. And um, Dave, Dave served at, for 28 years, did we just say 28 years, uh, on staff at the uh, Vineyard Cincinnati, uh, Tri-County Vineyard. Many of you may know it as the Tri-County Vineyard. And for 13 years, the last 13 years, served as a senior pastor there, senior leader there, led them through the whole process of developing um, the uh, healing center, and many of you know about that ministry of the church. And uh, Dave is just a wonderful friend and a wonderful man. One thing about Dave, he is a, a leader that has a national platform. People know him all over the country. Uh, but Dave is nice. Dave is kind. Now, I want to tell you, most, most leaders who have like a national platform like that uh, they have to pretend to be kind. Dave is really kind. And so I love him, and I, Dave, I want to welcome you up. Let's, let's give it up for Dave. Stand up and welcome him, okay? Oh, you guys are very kind. Ah, sit down. Sit down. You know, when... Uh, when Van said that we sent resources and people here for the church plant, really it was just people who were tired of hearing me talk. And they said, there's got to be somebody else. So I'm sorry, I'm back. No, 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 no. It's a mercy clap. You don't really mean it. Hey, what do you think the most asked question that pastors get from Christians? What do you think it is? You think? 
<laughs> Dang, that's it. <laughs> it's not, you know, you hear the, you know, why is there evil and the, why is there suffering in the world and so forth. Those big philosophic theological questions. But the most, at the most personal level, the most asked questions that I ever got was, what does God want me to do in this setting or in this situation? Or what is God's will for my life? It may not be phrased exactly like that, but, but it'll show up in questions like, what do you want me to do now, God? Because here's secretly what we Christians wish, if we're honest. Wouldn't it be totally awesome if there, if there were directions for life that just told us exactly what to do? Just think if someone could hand you an envelope with your life instructions in it. And all you had to do was just open it up and there it just told you everything. Here's the, uh, here's the uh, college I want you to attend. Uh, here's the perfect career for you. Here's the person you should marry. Uh, here's the blueprint, the plan for your life. And you just go and do it. Wouldn't that be easy, right? Be, well, whatever. Way back when dinosaurs ruled the earth and I was a 20-something, young 20-something, <clears throat> I was told as a young 20-something that God uh, loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And I was told that discovering that plan, discovering God's plan for me, was the most important thing I could do. So basically, I just went looking for the cosmic envelope. Where is that? So when it comes to God's will, there are certain things that we're all asked to do by God, right? It's love your neighbor, take care of the poor, you know, pray for the sick, worship him, give freely, be generous, and so forth. Share your faith. But what about the specific details of our lives? A particular plan that's designed especially for me. Like where to work, or who to marry, or, you know, where to live, and so on. Here's the good news. Believe it or not, the Apostle Paul answers that very question in a very direct way that's actually tailor-made for every single person. And he writes about it in one of his letters about how to find God's will in your life. But first, I think you have to step back and, and ask this question first. How would you know if you were in God's will? How would you know if you were in the perfect will of God? Let's just say right now, I use Van. Let's, let's just say right now, Van is in the perfect will of God right now. How would he know that? I mean, the reason I ask this is, is obvious. Do we have an assumed picture of what God's plan for us would look like? For instance, would it mean that all our circumstances were just going great? We're just kind of, you know, kind of smooth sailing through life? Or would it mean uh, that things just kind of worked out perfectly? Some single people might say that they would be married. Or some married people might say they'd be single. That's another message for another time. Would you have more money than you have right now? Would you be uh, happier than you are right now? Would you have a different job? Would you feel differently? How would you know if you were actually in the will of God? And what I'm poking at is this. When we start thinking about God's plan for our lives, we can carry a lot of assumptions into that. Assumptions on how that would look. And when a situation doesn't match our assumptions, then we assume we're not in God's will. So when I married my wife, when I married Anita, when I married my wife Anita, she was not my wife when I married, no, but that is confusing, but a mere uh, 39 years ago, 
I had certain assumptions about a marriage, like how we would handle our finances, or how we would parent if we had kids, or, you know, what our roles were, or how to resolve conflicts, or whatever, all mostly based on how I was raised, or, or how I observed that I didn't want to be like that from my family of origin, right? You don't talk about it, you don't talk about assumptions much beforehand because that's how assumptions work. You assume that the other person sees life the way you do. So why talk about it? There's no need. And and then wouldn't you believe it, I discovered that Anita did the exact same thing. Who would have thought that she would have had assumptions? Can you believe that? And even worse, our assumptions didn't always match, right? And then I had that naked lunch moment. Uh, marriage was going to take some work. Right? And by the way, that's why pastors, oh, they beg for young couples or any couple to, uh, who are getting married to take premarital classes. You know, it brings those things out in the open and makes sure that the most, one of the most important decisions you'll ever make in life is preceded by a full understanding of the other person's view of life. You know, of their values and priorities and practices and beliefs and so forth. I've heard way too many starry-eyed, brain-dead couples say, Dave, you don't understand. We're different. We're in love. It's different. We're in love. I say, yeah, so is Larry King. Eight times, I think. So, you know, as we seek out God's plan for our lives, we have all kinds of assumptions built in. So let's shake out some of those assumptions first. The will of God is not so much a plan as it is a friendship. The will of God is not so much a plan as it is a friendship. There's always a process before there's a product. For us, the process begins with surrender and surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. The process of building a friendship comes before any specific plan for our lives from Him. Now, God's will is pretty clear on this one. He wants everyone to come to know him and to be changed into the likeness of a son, to be what he calls a disciple or an apprentice. Or the Greek word actually just means a learner, right? Jesus' disciples see the world the way Jesus saw the world. They have a purpose like Jesus had a purpose. They, they function in this world the way Jesus functioned in the world. They look like him in terms of behaviors and motivations. A few years ago, there's uh, there a British photographer named James Mollison that I like. And he, uh, he came out with a book called uh, The Disciples. Because he was fascinated by the different fans who follow different music groups or pop stars or whoever. He was fascinated by their disciples. And so he took photographs of them outside of uh, concerts. Let me show you a few of the photos and see if you can guess who the artist is by their disciples. So just yell out who you think they are. All right. Who do you think these disciples are following? That's right, they're rocking the suburbs with the 72-year-old Rod Stewart. There they are right there. Okay, how about these ladies? Missy Elliott. That's right, singer-rapper Missy, uh, Missy Elliott. Okay, this is tough. See if you can guess who these guys are after. Yeah, they're covering like every phase of Elvis's life. You know, even the guy on In the End with, during the Twinkie phase... How about these folks? Prince, the late great Prince. 
Here, here, here's an easier. Who do you think these disciples uh, are following? Katy Perry. And last, the last one is really tough. See if you can get this one. Yeah. Just leave that up through the whole service. Just kidding. So if the disciples of pop musicians take on the look and the attitude and the swagger of the artists, what distinguishes Christians as disciples of Jesus? What do disciples of Jesus look like? How is a Jesus disciple even defined? So my favorite definition for a disciple, super simple, is this. A surrendered and transformed person who loves God and others. That's it. Are they loving God? Are they loving others? If the product is a transformed person who loves God and others, our part is the surrender part. God's part is the transformation. And so what we're going to see in Paul's letter is that we cannot discover God's plan for our lives if we don't understand this surrender part. So, so we have to talk about that first. So if you have your Bible or your version, swipe over to Romans chapter 11. And Paul's Roman letter is the equivalent of Beethoven's fifth. It is a masterpiece of spiritual understanding and revelation. And at the end of Romans 11, Paul just starts bragging about God. Have you ever had a little kid brag about their dad? You know, that's what's happening here. And so for 11 chapters, Paul's been building a case. He, Paul has been writing about how God has a redemptive plan for all of humanity, not just his own Jewish people. Now remember, the Jews were in a unique, special, contractual relationship with the God of the universe. And then suddenly, along comes Jesus and a new contract even though it had been prophesied for centuries and centuries. So it's like this. It's as if your dad, it's as if your dad is the king of a, or the president of a big country and, uh, and you're the heir of everything. Someday you're going to get it all. And then one day your dad walks in and says, hey, I got this idea. I'm going to adopt all the children, all the children in the neighborhood and make them heirs too. Well, that's a big deal if you're a Jew. And so Paul's wrestling with this. The fact that we primarily, primarily have a room full of Gentiles sitting here because of a Jewish rabbi is pretty amazing evidence of God's plan to include all people. And so Paul is talking about how big God is, how awesome he is, and all of a sudden, like a slam poem, poet, or like, like in the movie La La Land, if you saw that, all of a sudden he just breaks into a song at the end of Romans 11. So out of the blue, he just makes this shift and writes, Oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his wisdom and his knowledge and his riches. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods. For who among us can know the mind of the Lord? Who knows enough to be his counselor or his guide? And who could ever offer to the Lord enough to induce him to act? For everything comes from God alone. Everything lives by his power, and everything is for his glory. To him be the glory forevermore. Whew, Paul just busted out, man, right? So you get this, right? Paul is saying, God is awesomely amazing, his love. His mercy, his, his power is so phenomenal and his planning is so beyond our little thinking that we ought to do nothing but brag about him every night and every day. Right? 
And then in the very next verse, and remember, there weren't chapters and verses in Paul's letters. They just went through it. And the very next, the very next piece that Paul writes is this. Therefore, in other words, for everything I've been, in the case of everything I've been talking about, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, which I've been talking about for 11 chapters, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. So first, just as an aside here, Paul is redefining what real worship is for us. And what he's very explicitly saying is, there is no real worship without sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, you, you, didn't, you didn't worship without a sacrifice. Right? You can go to church every week. You can know all the words to every Bethel song. You can do the charismatic two-step. You can say your liturgies. You can put 15 fish stickers on your car. But if it's not really costing you something valuable... It's not really worship. So think about this. What is the most valuable thing that you have to give to God? And what Paul is saying is, it's your body. It's the whole you. You. You know, the body is the vehicle for your soul and spirit. It houses the whole package. That's why the New Testament talks so much about the resurrection of our bodies at the end. Because we weren't created to just be, you know, spirits floating around in some ethereal by and by. We were made to have flesh and bone, right? We, it's, it's who we are. It's how God desi- designed us. Matter, matter is important to God. And then he throws that word holy in there. And that adjective just means that it belongs to God, set apart for whatever he wants to do, right? He's telling them that you can't do anything you want to do with your body now because it belongs to God. And when you give your life to Jesus, that's exactly what happens. He's got dibs on it. It's what I would tell, you know, couples who were getting married. Hey, once you do this, you no longer own yourselves. You are now owned by the other. And even more, you become one. Love in the shape of marriage is serious business. So when you're married and you run off and flirt with someone else or you're shacking up with someone or you're checking out porno on the web or you're fantasizing about a romance novel, you're taking that other person with you. And that becomes Paul's argument for staying away or for guarding ourselves from sexual immorality in his Corinthian letter because he says, don't you know that your body is now God's house? You're not your own. You were purchased with a price. You can't foreclose on this. He's paid the mortgage off. He owns you. So don't cause the property values to drop by trashing up the place. That's what he said. That, That makes it our responsibility to live in ways that are holy. That just means set apart for whatever God wants to do. Because now you are holy. God lives in you. So present your whole self as a sacrifice. That is total surrender. So... You know, I'm a kind of an engineer kind of thinking guy. How do you do that, right? And I I haven't forgotten, we're going to get to the will of God stuff in a moment, but I promise. But this is connected to it. My observation is that the Bible describes this process of surrendering typically in three stages, or what I call the three circles of surrender. So the first circle, the first circle, the first start, is a surrender for survival. 
That's, that's the disciples crying out in a storm swamp boat. You know, Lord, save us, please. We're going down for the third time. Do something. That's you or me in the crisis moment saying, God, help me. Help me. That's how, that's how really we all start into this friendship with God. It's like Jesus saying at one point, come to me if you're tired and you're burdened. I'll give you rest. I'll rescue you, right? Or to the woman at the well, I have living water to give you. I can quench your thirst. You know? it's, it, in this stage of surrender, it is all about us at that point. <laughs> it is all about us because we need help. We need serious help. We're beaten down. We're tired. We want deliverance. We want help. We want real hope. We, want, we need someone to rescue us from our current situation. And so the question to ask, as we're wanting to find out God's will for our life, is this. Are you at this circle, at this stage? You know, once we cry out for salvation, for rescue, and simply receive it by faith, by trusting in the undeserved favor of God as expressed in the cross, we enter into a reborn, baby-like relationship with the God of the universe. Are you in this circle, or do you need to step into this circle at this point? Then, after we've received our second chance, right, we soon discover that there's more to this. And there's a second stage or a second circle that we have to move into that's usually out of gratitude. The next stage is the surrender to service. It's here that we let God know that we want to do something for him. You know, just, just out of response for what he's done for us, it doesn't matter what our career is or what we're doing for work or whatever. We just want to express our gratitude in some way to respond to the grace that God has given us. We understand that it's not in order to earn anything it was, that was given to us freely, but a response to the gift from God. After the, uh, after the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center... There was a great article in Time magazine a few years after that that was uh, talked about a woman who somehow survived from the 50th floor. She survived. And uh, though some people, most people suffer from survivor guilt, she became totally overwhelmed uh, by gratitude and, and a sense of purpose. She told a reporter, This is what she said. I was spared for a reason. I want to serve God with all that is in me. I want to make a difference. And so in this circle, there is a surrendering of our energy, of our hands, of any capabilities or abilities or gifts that we have, you know, in some sort of tangible way. It's natural. It's the circle of service. And so I would ask you, are you in this circle? Have you stepped into that one from survival? Have you made the surrender to serve Jesus? Have you responded to the grace of God in your life by wanting to serve in some way? Or, here's a thought, maybe you're stuck in this one. You serve, you you work hard, but maybe you feel a little burnout. It's starting to feel a little mechanistic, uh, maybe even a little transactional. It could be because there is a deeper circle that must be stepped into that's different, that's more comprehensive. Because last of all comes the surrender of self. And this is big, and it's personalized for each one of you. It's not the same. 
for you as it is for me or for them or him or her or whatever. This is big. This is where Jesus said, all right, now, if anyone would come after me, let him deny his self and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, choose your form of execution and model your life after mine. It's not if I die for God or if I am martyred for God, but rather I die daily. I make this decision daily. This is a death to self-will, to self-ambition, to recognition, to preference, to my own way of doing things, to everything in you that says there's a part of me that needs to be taken care of. This is really, really radical. I mean, really radical. And it's the part that other people won't understand because it's the part that you can't really talk about because it's deeply, deeply personal. No one knows what that is but you. It's humility on steroids. So when Jesus used that phrase, he was referencing the most heinous form of execution that the Romans used in that day. A slow tortuous death while stripped naked and nailed to wooden beams for everyone to see and spit on or mock or pity. And what he was doing was he was making something very clear. When a person is being crucified, they don't have any further plans. They don't have a five-year plan made out. They, they, They don't even have a plan B. They aren't going anywhere anytime soon. That's the deepest form of surrender. And traveling through these three circles are the only, it's the only way to really know God. And therefore, it's hard for you. Or as Jesus himself put it, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it really won't bear any fruit. It's a spiritual principle that you cannot get around. If we want to be fully used and know God deeply, we have to die to self. There's, there they go. There's the amen corner over there. You can't hear them. But Van and Laurie, and I don't know if Will's in on this or not, but every so often they'll say, that's good. That's good. It's not real passionate, but it's... It's, it, it's a... That's awesome! Oh, there you go. No. See? That doesn't count. That doesn't count, does it? No. That does it. That's... So, out of these three levels or these three circles of surrender comes a remarkable fruit. And it's the fruit that we're all looking for. It's called the transformed life. That's how Paul is describing what the will of God looks like for you. And then he gives a little more on how we discover God's specific will for our lives. So he's just been saying, you need to do this. Present your bikes. Do this, do this, do this. And then he turns, he makes a shift. He says, don't do this, though. And he writes in the very next phrase, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the reading of your mind. In other words, there is a roadblock to discovering what God has for you and his plan for you. It means that you have to change the way you think. That means that we have to tap into, discover the way God thinks about the world and how he thinks about us and how we relate to each other and his role, his, his, our own role in his plan for, for the universe. And, and, and once you do that, 
Well, then, here it comes. And Paul lays it out right here. Then, you'll be able to test and to prove what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then, you'll know. Now, are you still, are you still tracking with me? You still with me? Okay. We're almost done. So, get ready to run out the door. Let, let me tell you something very clearly, and I want you to listen uh, really closely. If you've ever wanted to know what God's will is for you, you'll never know until you give your whole self, all of you, as a living sacrifice to God. And so when I hear people say, I I just don't know what God wants me to, I don't know what his will is. There's only one place to begin to discover that. Have you surrendered your whole self to God? And it's not until you lay everything down that you really begin to discover what he has for you, really. And in the end, it may be less about uh, finding God's will and more about following God's will. The, the author, Henry Blackaby, in his, uh, in his book, he puts it like this. What is God's will for my life is not the best question to ask. I think the right question is simply, what is God's will? And once I know God's will, then I can adjust my life to him and to his purposes. Hmm, makes sense. But in closing, let me, let me give you one caveat or one, uh, one, just one different angle on this. In his classic book, Ruthless Trust, I love this book. Author Brennan Manning, he tells this amazing story. He says, when the brilliant ethicist John Cavanaugh went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta, he was seeking a clear answer as to how best to spend the rest of his life. On the first morning there, he met Mother Teresa. She asked, and what can I do for you? Cavanaugh asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for? She asked. Pray that I have clarity. She said firmly, no, I won't do that. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to, and you must let go. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity he longed for, she laughed and said, I have never had clarity. I have always had trust. So I will pray that you trust God. And, you know, I'm an old guy now. I'm old and fat. And the thing that I've learned, the thing that I've learned is this. Clarity isn't everything it's chalked up to be. You know, if you knew everything, at what point would any sense of trust in the beautiful and merciful God of the universe, what would be there, right? You know, and, and the bottom line is, and Anita and I, we have talked about this so many times throughout challenging times in our lives is that it's hard to make a bad decision in the kingdom of God if your heart is bent toward pleasing heaven. Yeah. He just has a way of redeeming uh, decisions and making them as... Because in the end, he wants to see you making decisions that honor him. If he laid it all out, where's the honor in that? The bottom line is, the plan of God is revealed as we are faithful in the simplest general things that he first gives us to do. So, if you're wanting to discover what God's will is for you specifically, which 
circle of surrender do you see yourself in? Because ultimately, the journey is to the center, you know, and, and, and the center of who you really are. Have you given yourself completely to Jesus? And so, during our worship time that is coming, think about that. Think about what circle am I in, God? Where, where am I? And is it time to take the risk to go deeper and to simply trust? Let's pray. Father, you are uh, so good. You're more than kind and merciful to us, God. And um, Father, we want to follow what you're doing. We want to be about your business. And God, I pray for those of us who are at the kind of moments of decision or whatever. I pray that the first thing we would check in our hearts is, have I surrendered my whole self to Jesus? What am I hanging on to? What am I clinging to? Is clarity something I need to let go of? And so, Father, we uh, ask that you just come during this time and really speak to us and show us where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, that's the highlight of my week right there. I love that. Yeah, I just love being in God's presence and worshiping. Uh, we also love praying for people because we believe God does stuff when we pray. We believe God wants to touch our lives in a real way. And, and so we're going to have our prayer teams come down right now. And those of you that are up here worshiping, if you're on the prayer team, you can just turn around. And if not, uh, we need to make some room. But um, I, I want to, uh, just in case Dave wants to call a group up, I'm not sure if he will, but prayer team, just come from here over, okay? Leave this whole section over here empty, okay? And um, I'm just going to give it to Dave right now. Dave, come on up, man. Thanks. Okay, I think, uh, man, that was so good. Wow. You should take this on the road. That's so good. No, 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 no. No, no. <laughs> Here's what I think we should do. Uh, obviously, open it up for anyone who needs prayer for anything specifically. But then, right at the last, there, I was thinking I, the 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 phrase "hit the wall." <laughs> came to me, and I wondered if there were some of us here who feel like our lives have just got to hit the wall and we're stuck. And maybe that is God's way of bringing us into that, middle, that center circle where we finally just raise our hands and say, it's all yours, God, and release that. So if that's you guys, why don't you, I'll just come down anywhere and just have somebody pray for you. And if no one's praying for you, how about this, Van? Just raise a hand up. And any of these folks will be glad just kind of come around, you know, come around you and pray. So come on down if that's if hit the wall describes where you think you are. And then last, as you're coming down, uh, anyone who has yet to step into that first big circle of surrendering to Jesus, man, just just in your heart, just cry out, say, Lord Jesus, come save me, come rescue me. I don't know a lot about what's going on, or maybe I've been in churches for a million years, but 
I know I need to surrender to you. I need you to save me. So, Lord, take my life. You know, here's the broken pieces of my heart. I give it to you. Put your heart, your spirit inside of me and make me a new creation and I'll follow you all the days of my life. So thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, I just pray for all of us. God, I pray for an amazing week of divine encounters, of you leading us to places where we surrender even more deeply than where we are. Bring us to the center. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, come on down if you want prayer.